This week's episode is brought to you in partnership with Rotacloud, the people management platform for shift-based teams. Rotacloud lets managers create and share rotas, record annual leave, and process timesheets in minutes, all from a single web-based app. It makes communicating with your team a doddle, letting your staff check their rotas, receive updates and alerts about their shifts, and even clock in and out using the Rotacloud mobile app. Head over to rotacloud.com forward slash fill to start your 30-day free trial and find out how much easier managing your team can be. Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where each week we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is Rosa Bruff, founder of 750, the hospitality film and media gurus. Coming up on today's show, Rosa gives us a saying for the ages... Go full skinny dipping or don't go swimming at all. After 150 episodes, the police finally catch up with Phil. About 10 years ago, probably now. And Rosa describes an everyday occurrence in filming. And the hairy bikers are driving through the drive-thru dressed as a hairy chicken and a giant egg. All that and so much more as Rosa chats us through her brilliant story to date. Rosa was another of those amazing people I met at HRC earlier this year, where I had the opportunity to collaborate with her and her team. What she's doing highlights yet another career available within the world of hospitality, and maybe even something you hadn't considered. She's an absolute live wire throughout our chat, and I'm very grateful for her sharing her story. One final thing before we get into it, and I know I go on about this, but if you can take two seconds to subscribe to the show and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts, it really makes a huge difference. Enjoy. And a huge hospitality mates. Welcome to Rosa Bruff. Hello. Hello. Rosa. Hello. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? Very well, thank you. Excited to chat. Yeah, indeed. Well, uh, for context, who are you and what do you do? (laughs) Uh, That's a big question, isn't it? Um, So I run 750, which is a independent video production company that specialises in making content for the hospitality industry. So films, photography for restaurants, chefs and everything in between. So if we've been going about two years, we're quite young. But before that, I worked in TV. So I was a TV producer for about 13 years, making cookery shows mostly for the BBC. So like yes. Tom Kerridge and Nadia Hussein, Harry Bikers, all of that kind of stuff. So Wicked. Well, yeah. well, we'll definitely, definitely get into all of that. But um, yeah, I, I just this is the one thing. Well, it's one of the many things, actually, that I love about the industry that we work in is that the uh, one, it puts you in front of people that you, like, I would never have expected to have had any dealings with you in my life. And then we meet at HRC a few weeks ago, which was awesome, a great experience. And it just dawned on me as well that look, here's another example of something that you can do in hospitality. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the things I always say through like our work with Choose Hospitality and other campaigns is there isn't a job in hospitality that doesn't exist. Like whatever you do, whatever your skill set, whatever area you want to work in, the great thing about hospitality is it's everything. So when people ask me what industry do you work in, I say hospitality. I don't say media or film production because, to be honest, I don't really like the connotations that are associated with oh I work in media um so I (laughs) I say hospitality because Uh, I am in the industry all the time it's just I just make films and take photos of hospitality but I'm in it so yeah you totally are the the lack connotations of media is it it the same as I'm going for a gap year yeah I sort of feel like unfortunately 
there is a bit I think it's got worse in like the world of content creation which I also hate and I'm using air quotes for that is that well I'm creating content what you saying no content creation (laughs) is great but I do think there is like I went to university I studied journalism that's how I started I always wanted to interview people that was what I wanted to do I just wanted to get out and talk to people and so I studied at a level and diploma and degree level journalism and politics and interviewing and news basically is what I my foundations are and that's what I'm trained in and that's then what has led me to my career and what I'm doing now but I think I don't know there's a bit of a there are a lot of people I think it's the same of any industry where and I'll get slapped on the rest of saying this but I sort of don't really care is just because you're running around with a camera and you're working media, everyone thinks it's really glamorous and it's not hard work and you can just take like photos or you can just film something and put it out and there's no skill in it and there's no like, I don't know. I My other half, okay, this is a good example. My other half is Indian and he won't mind me saying this and they won't mind saying this, but traditionally within Indian tradition, jobs that count as careers are academic, scientists, doctors, all of that kind of stuff. And it's the same with, hospitality and I think it's the same as media it's when we first met it was kind of like oh you work in media that's not a proper job do you know what I mean and so I think there's two sides to it in the same as there is with hospitality there's a lot of people that just do it because it's kind of cool and they can just do it and there are elements of it it's quite easy where it's like okay I'll just go work in a bar until I work out what I'm going to do with my life but then the other half of it is it is actually a career and something that you do properly and when it's done properly it's great but unfortunately there is a lot of times where it's not done properly and I think the because it's so now with everyone having photos and cameras on their phones and everyone makes content I think it's even harder to go well this is actually I've been doing this for 15 years I kind of know how to do it and it's a skill and a profession it's not just something that you can just go oh, well, I just pick up a camera and I work in media now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I sort of went yeah, off yeah. on a bit of a tangent there, but... No, 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 I I, I get you 100%. And, um, yeah, I mean, even from the perspective of starting this humble little show, I wanted to make sure... One of the first things that I read about how to start a podcast was you have to make sure that the audio quality is good because mm. nobody will listen if the audio quality is bad. Um, and so it comes down to then, okay, so how do you then make that happen? It's not just a case of using the microphone that's in your laptop as an example. I have a I have a little microphone here. <laughs> so you know, and even then, I've I'm 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 like scratching about five percent of the skill mm. level that's involved in creating something like this. And I, all I strive to do is just to make every day a little bit better than yesterday. Mm. That's pretty much it. And I think. That's what I think it's partly, and I will probably talk about this quite a lot in this podcast, but the similarities between television production, media production and hospitality are very similar. There is a lot of things that are the same. And I think one of those things is the fact of the perceptions of it as a career and a profession and as an industry. Um, It's not an academic subject. It's not life threatening. It's not saving lives. It's not doctors and nurses and teachers and scientists and all of those proper jobs but the fact that I have to do that because I feel like media and hospitality that's exactly what's wrong with why we've got this massive staffing crisis in hospitality because a lot of people don't take it seriously as a job and I think it's the same for media 
I think it's a lot of people do it for a bit and go okay that's kind of cool I want to do it because they want to be seen to be going to nice places and taking cool photos and stuff but then actually it's not it's not taken seriously and that I think that's something I struggle with and I sort of if ever anyone says to me I want to get into tv or I want to get into film or I want to do this in media and what should I do I say absolutely do not go to university and study media production just don't do it because all the skills that you need people skills listening storytelling all of that comes through life and life experience and do something like English or history or geography or science or something that you're interested in because anything can then everything else I can teach you to pick up a camera or how to use it or whatever don't spend three years learning how to make a film because I just think it's the wrong thing to be doing that doesn't give you the reason why the good people that are really good at it are people that are good at life I think then just being able to record it is then a separate thing does that make sense I don't think that really makes sense no, no, no. I, I, I get you. It's almost like go and get yourself the practical experience, which is way more important yeah. than any theoretical experience you'll learn in a classroom. Yeah, and I think you can do. There's so many brilliant. And actually, I was just talking about one this morning with a colleague that there's so many great short courses that will teach you how to use software, will teach you the technical things of a camera. That stuff can be learned easily, but that should not be overlooked as a priority. Is like listening to people and engaging with people and being able to pick up the phone and talk to someone and ask them the right questions and get the information that you want and create something that is interesting to somebody else I think that is not something that you learn by playing around with a camera like that's the kind of part two part one is getting out there and putting yourself in situations with people and then think about the technicalities of it yeah God, we got straight into this, didn't we? Really. I know, and I, I, it's sort of one of my niggly things. I never really, like, I do, I'm quite opinionated, sorry about it, but I think I think I'm allowed to be. I think I've been doing it a long time. I feel like now I, I'm allowed to say, I think not enough people are honest as well, which yeah, is something no, I'll come no, you, to later, but you kind of just got to say it because that's what I think. I've been doing it a long time. I just, that's what I would say to people. Whether it's right or wrong, I don't really care. <laughs> Yeah, I it, think. It's, it's what's tr- true to you right that's the most important thing is that and that's something that you yeah. deeply c- care about you care about yeah. your craft and you care about what and why you're doing something yeah. um there's and that an, comes across there's an amazing this is the last thing i'll say about it then we can move on but there's an amazing <laughs> clip of someone got into on your story yet. <laughs> there's an amazing clip of youtube of someone that's there's all these like reviews of like camera kit and this lens and this camera blah 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 and there was an amazing guy that just said um there is no point where it is ever acceptable for the size of the lens the price of the camera the tech the high techness of your equipment becomes more important than the subject matter of what you're filming and what the person in front of you is saying and I think that is fundamentally what needs to be remembered in this kind of industry of film and tv and making content it's like you can get so carried away now technology is amazing and there's like technology has come so far since I was at university and we were filming everything on tapes um and like having to cut all of that kind of stuff but and it's amazing and 4k and 
all of this stuff. But I think it's very easy when people are looking at things and everything is on first impression, everything is on the first five seconds, everything is what things look like. It's very easy to think that it is way more important to think how something looks and what equipment you've used to film it than it is to actually who you're filming and what they're saying and why they're saying it. And I think that I say to my team is like, I almost, I would don't care if you go out and shoot it on your phone, if it's in the moment and someone's doing something that is really important and really interesting, film it on your phone because I care so much more about what it is that you're actually filming than how you're filming it. And I think mm-hmm. you can get carried away with tech and kit because it creates the impression that you're doing a bigger and better job than you actually are. No, I, I think that's a, that's a very interesting uh, perspective because I've I've been taught all the way through is like get the kit, you know, and I actually do have the kit. Yeah. I can I've got kit that I can go out and about with and all of that, and it and it does make it. It definitely makes a difference from a microphone perspective um, that you yeah. have a good microphone um, yeah. for sound quality purposes. But uh, but beyond that, yeah, I mean, I kind of I kind of get it. Like even yeah. I suppose even then, even if the you've got the best microphone in the world and your sound quality is crystal clear if what's being said or what's being heard is completely inane and irrelevant and not interesting then who cares about the quality of your microphone exactly and i think yes okay there is i mean obviously i there are there is kit that i like and i think is really good and i think it's important to have the right equipment to be able to do things but it's the same as like when I was setting up the business and there's this thing called like the lean startup. And it's like, well, actually, what is the very basics of what you need to do a good job and then work with that? And then you can think about kind of getting better and get moving into all of these kind of stuff. Don't start with the Ferrari if you can't drive a Golf. Like you've got to be able to do the very basics with, you've got to be able to do a good job with shit tech and then you can do a really amazing job with great tech. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a saying that will definitely go on a T-shirt. The um, don't drive a Ferrari <laughs> if you can't drive a Golf. Well, I was trying to think of a real, like, a Golf isn't even a bad car. I was trying yeah. to think of a car. I know nothing about cars, sorry. Well, we get the points. We get the points, yes. Anyway, right. Anyway, um, you ask the questions now. It's very, uh, <laughs> it's very useful to get that perspective though because like anybody who's listening to this who's who's contemplating a a career in any kind of production hopefully has taken some pointers from this because maybe you have like I have like I totally have bought into the tech that you need to make a podcast happen but the reality is you don't Mm. need the tech you need good guests you need good conversation you need all of these things that's the, the thing that's actually really more important this is like yeah, a therapy and I session think now for me. I know. I feel, I'm sorry. I feel like I'm sorry. It, yeah, I don't want to be um, downtrodden. And I think there is a time and a place absolutely for making things look the most amazing. But in our everyday lives, we're not trying to make blockbuster films with stuff we're putting on Instagram. Let's be honest. We just want people yeah. to engage with it and know more about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And I don't. I think it's more about the energy and the money that you spend getting hung up on that kind of stuff, which actually it doesn't really matter really yeah 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 yeah. as long as you can see it and hear it i think it's fine (laughs) yeah let's let's park that phase that's phase one we'll call um yeah let's go back to uh you mentioned that you um that you studied journalism 
And mm. yeah, so what after that, what happened next? What was there a moment where you started to feel like, right, I know what I want to do now? Had that come yet? Or did you still have to kind of go out there and find that? Sort of. I mean, so when I when I was younger, I went in my teenage years up until sort of I had to up until university, uh, maybe before, I was always like obsessed with like newspapers and the radio and interviews. And I, I sort of knew I wanted to get into journalism. And then I studied broadcast journalism, like I said, but that was it was very news heavy. So we did like a news broadcast every day and we had to go out and make news segments and film like things about, you know, when you see those headlines on the side of a corner shop of local bin lorry crashed into whatever, I don't know, like silly little stories. But we had to go out and film like five, six of those a day and turn around. And I was like, well, this is great. But I sort of feel like I want to do something where I've got more time. I didn't, and it's funny, it's kind of all come back around, but as part of my degree, we had to do work experience, and I thought, well, we we had an amazing studio at university, I went to Nottingham Trent, and it was brilliant, I had the best time. We had a fully-fledged news suite, TV studio, so I felt like I didn't really want to go and do news, but I just wanted to go and do something in that area, and we had to do work experience, so I just sent out loads of letters to TV production companies, because I would watch... I wanted to get into like investigative journalism, like really long, deep, dark journalism. Right. This was after Fair I enough. went to a phase of wanting to be a war reporter, which drove my mum mental. <laughs> um, and so I watched documentaries and then I watched the credits and I waited until the end and it came up with the production company logo of who made it. And I made a list of all these companies that made the programmes that I liked and then I just emailed them and I said, look, can I come and do some work experience? And I spent a summer doing work experience at all these different production companies. But one of the best bits of advice was that was ever given to me and I say to people is, even though you know what you think you want to do, try and do loads of different things around it because it will all benefit what you want to do. Like I wanted to do journalism and documentaries. That's what I wanted to do. But I did work experience in all aspects of television. So I did singing competitions, antique shows cooking shows I just spent like a summer working on any tv show because it kind of I didn't really know what else existed about outside of documentary I just wanted to do documentary and then I started seeing the world outside of serious journalism and saw like features and factual entertainment programs and I was like oh actually tv production is kind of fun because I'm still meeting people we're still telling stories and we're still doing things but it's a bit less serious and a bit less and it still kind of takes me to all these kind of places so I sort of kind of then thought oh tv production is quite cool maybe I'll go down that um and I got an intern offered an internship from one of the work experience placements that I did um at RDF television in London and I literally had my first day after my last exam at university and then I was thrust into the tv world and and that was it and I was there for a couple of years working as a runner doing every kind of show like I said singing competitions antique shows and I just loved the buzz of it and the people and the different the, it's the variety is the spice of life as they say like I just loved not yeah. knowing where I was going to go like one minute I was driving a brand new BMW that was given to us for the shoot with Katie Piper in the back really needing a wee 
on the way back from a shoot and had to pull over like on the motorway just so she could go wee in a bush and then the next I'm in a studio with Keith Lemon and Stacey Solomon doing the singing competition and then the next I'm in a field making giant food like it was just so varied that I it just kept me interested and I think I I know that is one of my traits that I just I never like knowing what's going to happen really I like the element of surprise in my life like if you were to say to me what's happening in three months time I literally have no idea I think like a month ahead max really which is terrible for business as I've learned but I just liked the idea that you weren't you didn't know who you were going to meet and what you were going to be doing and that's what tv production was like when I was started out and it just made me so excited and I never then decided to like categorize myself of I want to make documentaries or I want to make wildlife programs or I want to make antique shows I just made shows because I just felt like every show that I did I learned something or met someone that I didn't know before or hadn't thought about before so it was just kind of felt like I was just soaking up all of this stuff really and it wasn't until I'd been doing it about seven eight years that I got into food really before then I was just doing everything I suppose that but that's um it makes total sense because and just to clarify the job of a, a runner kind of is exactly what it says on the tin you basically run around doing everything that people need you to do yeah and I loved it because it's kind of like you've got no responsibility really but you're in amongst you're just in the right place and someone used to say to me because in the beginning I was just making tea and I remember after the first week phoned my mum and I was like mum this isn't for me like I'm literally just making tea and going around and handing out the post that's literally what I did and then she was like yeah but who are you making tea for and who are you handing the post to and I was like oh actually well yeah I could be making tea in Costa for everyday members of the public who I'm never going to meet again or I'm making tea for directors and producers who are the people that I want to be like when I grow up and I was like actually if I'm going to make tea somewhere I want to make it here and then after that I was like happy to do anything as one of my like I would just do anything I just go yeah cool drive in so as a runner your main thing is you're just supporting the production so you are making tea going out getting lunch driving helping like carry and move around kit like you could be anything so you kind of get like a bit of bit of everything and you literally do just run around and I think as long as you smile and say yes and don't be grumpy you'll you'll end up getting really far it was it was the best when you're uh, those early days when you're just like learning it all I loved it I loved it so much yeah you've been wide-eyed yeah apart from the responsibility of driving big brand new scary cars around central London was pretty scary but other than that you right. just got to get over it <laughs> eventually <laughs> so you got the uh you got the interest in food where did that was there a, a specific moment where that just kind of sparked in your head yeah and I think he he might listen to this I I do have to credit my old housemate who I lived with in London who also worked in TV and started out as a runner with me at this internship called Ewan but I was lucky my mum always cooked I loved cooking and always been interested in it I'd grown up very luckily around homemade food all the time and I loved seeing my mum cook and had helped her and sort of had an interest in it when I I sort of got back into cooking myself when I was living in London um, and it was my housemate Ewan who kind of went 
like we just got into cooking together um and it was actually it was Jamie Oliver's 30 minute meals which make because I was like working crazy hours as a runner I wanted to get back into cooking I didn't have much money but actually I got given that book and I thought okay cool I'm just going to start cooking and it just got me really into cooking again and I was still doing like other normal shows and just like cooking and then I sort of thought well there's kind of food shows that I could do so what if I combined the two like I'm working in food that would be quite cool um and I went for I started looking at jobs that were in food tv and the first one I did was Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares oh nice god and it it kind of threw me in uh at the deep end so I did that and then that was from then I just ended up then doing food shows after that and I was like this is great because the subject matter it was always good like I liked working on antique shows and all that kind of stuff because I felt like I was learning about something new but then as soon as you go on to the next job like I had a, did a whole thing about taxidermy where I had to learn everything about taxidermy. And at the time I was an expert on taxidermy. But if you asked me a year later, anything about taxidermy, I've literally pushed it out of my brain, gone on to the next thing. Yeah. Whereas with food, because it was... As you should, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Whereas with food, it kind of, because I was doing it at home and I was genuinely interested in it, it just felt like the more I did it, not the easier it got, but the deeper I got into the kind of food TV world. And it just it just snowballed from there, really. Yeah. Okay. So Kitchen Nightmares. Yeah. Just talk as a, I suppose that's your maybe the first big break when it comes to food shows. Um, Absolutely. How did it progress from there? So Kitchen Nightmares at the time was made by um, a production company called One Potato, Two Potato, which was... Gordon had an involvement in, but they were an arm of Optimum Television, which is the, well, was the company that discovered Jamie Oliver. And so they did a lot of kind of food shows and they are the company that make Great British Menu. Right. So I did, after I did Kitchen Nightmares, I was in the office um, around the time that they were then starting the next series of Great British Menu. So then I went from Ramsey's Kitchen Nightmares to Great British Menu and then that was obviously like and it still is one of the best highly regarded food shows that there is so oh, I then got thrown straight into it for me as a foodie it's the greatest television program that exists mm. um, yeah I, I love the I love watching these guys do their thing you know just be creative against a brief and when they when they pull it off to a level that you could you can't even cop comprehend and I've actually just mm. lucky enough only last week I had a, a, a chat with Adam Handling who was obviously this year's sorry spoiler alert champion of champions yeah and um I just I, for somebody who's interested in food like it, there is no reason not to watch that program like it's no. just it's just really interesting from start to finish so I can't even comprehend. It'd be a nightmare behind the scenes, probably. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the only reason to not watch it is when you've made a couple of series of it, like me, and you just can't right. to watch it anymore. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think it when, I mean, that was series 10, that I fir- the first time I did it. And what are we on, like, series 19 now? Um, I yeah, and I, I think at the time, before there might be young listeners to this that can't imagine a world without social media and Instagram wasn't really a thing. Facebook wasn't really a thing. Mobile phones with cameras weren't really a thing. So the only way that you could really see chefs of that caliber cooking the way that they do 
was on that show because you didn't see them in their restaurants plating up dishes on their Instagram page. You didn't see videos on YouTube of what they were doing. It genuinely was a shop window into the world of fine dining chefing. Like that is the only time you would see the processes. And I remember my job was the food researcher. So it was literally my job to direct contact all of the chefs get all of their recipes for every dish that they were doing and then kind of break them down and highlight the points of each recipe that were going to be interesting for the director. And I remember getting some of these recipes through and the terminology on them and the processes, I had no idea. So I've got my big like food thesaurus and all of that. I just had to learn all of this kind of stuff of at the time, it was kind of quite molecular as well, like all the equipment they were using because they'd send their kit list and then the techniques. And you imagine like each recipe has got like 20 elements, some of them, and that they're doing this and they're doing that and they're doing that. And it was my job to kind of dissect that and go, OK, we can't in a 30 minute program, you can't talk about every single thing. So what are the interesting bits? And I had to quite quickly learn everything about cooking at that level and I think that really helped me and gave me a good foundation to then understanding that world and I think it is food media production is one of those things where I think you do have to have a bit of an understanding about it to kind of be able to really share what it is that you're filming or whatever there's kind of like you can go to a restaurant and make a little film about the dining experience which is very popular now kind of a customer point of view but to take what the chefs or restaurants are doing and then project it to an audience that doesn't really understand that kind of world. I think you do have to have an understanding of it in the same way that Mm. wildlife programming, like the people that make David Attenborough's programs, they are highly skilled wildlife broadcasters because their knowledge about biology and science and wildlife and animals is second to none. Like you can't make those programs if you don't understand how ants move because you're filming them for whatever. And I think it's the same of you can't really film a process in a kitchen unless you really understand what the process is because you you've got to be quick because they don't hold they don't wait for you. So you you no. kind of gotta preempt it. And I think that's what then because I had done something like that, it then opened the doors to every other kind of food show because it was so highly regarded and such a level that I could then quite easily go and work on Nadia's family favourites or chicken and egg with the hairy bikers because I just thought I I just got it and I loved it so I soaked it up like a bloody sponge really. Yeah yeah absolutely well who were the chefs when you first hit the great British menu scene? So just to kind of because this will date it perfectly. Yeah, so it was, um, I was actually with one of them yesterday. So Josh Edgerton from Bristol, Richard Bainbridge from Norfolk. It was Michael O'Hare, who's now a judge. It was his first time on the series. Right, yeah, God, I remember that year, yeah. It was, uh, oh my gosh, Matt Gillen, Pip Lacey. I can't even remember. Kind of like, yeah, proper old school chefs. Matt Warswick, who's now in Barbados doing stuff but yeah I think the one that because of the one that you sort of see all the time yeah it was the first time Michael O'Hare had done telly and that was yeah so it was series 10 it was the women's institute series which was great right um so yeah. about 10 years ago probably now but it's also from a shop window perspective for these chefs it's an incredible show because you know and 
that was my ignorance at the time, but I hadn't heard of Michael O'Hare at that time. No. And then he came on with it, with his very unique brand of cooking. And uh, and all of a sudden you're like, well, I have to go and eat in his restaurant. God, that looks yeah. insane. Well, I think people forget that Tom Kerridge, Paul Ainsworth, Richard Corrigan, all of these chefs that are such household names now, they started TV life on Great British Menu. That's how it started for them. So there's yeah. a reason, like there's a reason why it's a bit of an institution. There's a reason why chefs want to do it because it does get you out there to a world that might not know who you are. Yeah, a, pr- a proper platform for for sure. Um, so yeah, then that took you into other TV shows. Oh, I did a few. Uh, the one that springs to mind is Nadia's family favorite. I can't remember now. I did, I did quite a few. In London, but then it was the thing that made me move to Bristol. I sort of got to a point where I was living in London at the time and I just sort of felt like I didn't have any ties. I was sitting on the tube a lot. All of my friends were in different corners. I didn't really have a reason to be in London. And at the time, working in TV, the only other two places where there was an industry were Manchester or Bristol. And a lot of food programmes came out of Bristol. So the Nigel Slater series, the Harry Biker series, even the BBC food programme, the radio um, series still comes out of Bristol. So Bristol was a bit of a food hub. So I thought if I want to continue making food programmes, I've got to go to Bristol. So I just legged it. I was standing on a street corner waiting for the bus and I had a phone call from my exec from Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares. And she said, I want you to come and work a year's contract which in tv at the time was a long contract on um this show called first dates it's going to be amazing and i just remember saying i'm really sorry but i've got to leave london and i've got to go to bristol i don't have a job i don't have anywhere to live i don't know anyone there and even though you're offering me a year's contract on what now is an amazing show i'm really sorry i've just got to say no and it was one of those moments where i was just like it'll be fine don't worry about it it'll be fine but had I not done that I then wouldn't have gone on to do all the amazing food shows and then started the company in the way that I did so yeah yeah, life crossroads moment for sure yeah and what level are you at at this point like in terms of how a production team works where where are you in the grand scheme of things so when I moved to Bristol I was an assistant producer so you go runner researcher assistant producer producer, producer, director, series producer, exec producer. That's kind of the ladder. So I was kind of in the middle, but I'd been doing it a long time, about seven years. I was a researcher for ages. I didn't want to step up. There was always kind of this pressure. And I think a lot of it now is you want the next job role. You want the next title. You want to step up the ladder. So a lot of my peers were becoming assistant producers ahead of me. And it was always, I mean, TV was incredibly competitive at the time, and it still is. But I always felt like there's this pressure for me to step up and become an assistant producer. But I loved being a researcher. It was kind of my favourite job role in TV because I sort of felt like I got to have all the fun without any of the real kind of responsibility. Um, So I stayed a researcher for ages, and that's actually how I ended up getting the Gordon Ramsay show because... I was the most experienced researcher in the pool of researchers because everyone else who had got my level of experience had gone up to assistant producer and it wasn't an assistant producer role. It wasn't the money. It wasn't the job title. So the only reason I got into the industry was because I held my ground and I didn't give in to the pressure of wanting the job title and the money. 
I sort of knew yeah. that if I stayed a researcher for longer than everybody else, I then got to choose whatever job I wanted because I was a really experienced researcher. I wasn't a junior assistant producer. Does that make sense? It totally does. Yeah, yeah. And actually, it's, there's a, a cracking career lesson for anybody listening uh, at this point in that is like, you, you know, don't you don't need to be in a rush to get to where you're going. Actually, oh just God. take a moment and learn your craft to the best yeah. that you can. Um, exactly. And look at look at what can come. And it goes back to my Ferrari and golf stupid anecdote that I said earlier. But I remember thinking when I got that Gordon Ramsay job, oh my God, like this is why I waited. Like I almost wanted to go two fingers up to everybody else that was kind of pressuring me because I had been offered yeah. jobs as assistant producers, but they were jobs on shows that I just wasn't interested in and I just wanted to do something that I wanted to do. And I remember being like, yeah, it's worked. Like, this is why I've waited. Because then after that, that's when my career changed. And it was because because I was patient and I was just, I must have been 24, maybe at the time, 24, 25. And I just felt like I'm just kind of going to ignore everybody that's like wants to be a director by the time they're 28 because I just wanted to see what would come to me and it worked so yeah wait wait yeah. kids don't rush <laughs> <laughs> listen to your uncle uncle i was going to call you uncle rosa there sorry uh, auntie rosa yeah. <laughs> um yeah so uh, just reel off some of the other shows that you and and kind of the roles that you had within uh those shows oh my god i sort of should have my cv because you know what you forget so you end up doing so many shows so when i moved to bristol i had a brief hiatus from food and i ended up doing a series called medical mysteries which was about people who had weird medical conditions that were unsolved yeah. which actually was really interesting <laughs> and i made some really good friends and then i went and did a couple of hairy bikers shows so i did hairy bikers home comfort hairy bikers chicken and egg where i went i did the america episode so i ended up going around america with the hairy bikers filming fried chicken and barbecue chicken nice. and all this amazing stuff which was great it was one of the best jobs hey everyone so i just wanted to take a quick moment of your time to say that this podcast wouldn't be possible without the incredible people and brands that support it and i'm proud to partner with rotacloud the people management app for hospitality teams with thousands of customers worldwide rotacloud's simple web-based tools are already helping businesses like yours save time and money every single day it makes planning and sharing rotas easy with work schedules sent straight to employees' phones and staff automatically notified if there's a change to their shifts. It also makes managing annual leave a breeze with staff requesting time off directly through the RotaCloud mobile app. All you need to do is click approve or deny and RotaCloud will take care of the rest. But don't just take my word for it. Visit rotacloud.com forward slash fill to try RotaCloud free for 30 days and see for yourself how much easier managing your team can be. Now. Let's get back to the conversation. A lot of Nadia's early series. And then so at that time, I was kind of assistant producer. I got into Produce the World with Nadia, I think, when I was becoming more experienced. And then I started working on Tom Kerridge series. Um, so I did Lose Weight, Get Fit. And I did some stuff working with him for Marcus Rashford for Instagram. And this was when I was producer level, it was kind of like, OK, I sort of could pick and choose and I kind of had a reputation. I mean, it is word of mouth, unfortunately. One of the things about the industry is I don't think I've ever had a real job interview in my life. I think I've just met for a coffee and gone, oh, this is this show. Do you want to do it? Watch the CV. When can you start? It's never really like I remember my mm. other half um, talking about like 
what are they called? Appraisals and end of contract things. So all of this kind of stuff in real business world. And I was like, I've never had any of that. I've never even had an interview. So I just kind of went from like job to job with people I knew who I'd worked with because everyone's freelance in TV. So everyone does a job. It's three, four months, a bit longer if you do the edit. And then you all leave and you all go somewhere else. So everyone kind of moves around. You don't just work for one production company. You don't just work for one. Well, in the day, this is what you did. And so everyone would kind of move around. So it was all about networking and who you worked with. And you always wanted to make a good impression. So then I'd go on a sit, like I'd get a call from a director of a series that I'd worked with on something else. And he was then doing something new. So can you come and do this with me? And then, so it all just kind of then, it spreads a bit like wildfire. And then when people are kind of crewing up for a job, you're kind of, there's names on the list that once you do those kind of shows, you then just end up being on the list for phone calls to then do those kind of shows, really. Got you. So uh, at what point were you starting to get a kind of sense in your head that uh, I might want to go and do this on my own? Um, I sort of started to get to the point where I was, guess I was quite senior. I felt like I'd been doing it for quite a long time. And there were certain people that I worked with and still do today who sort of I felt like trusted me to make decisions and and kind of have some sort of creative line into what we do and why we do it. But there were some jobs where I felt like I was still, no matter how hard I worked or how experienced I was, I felt like I was always going to have someone else that was sitting in an office somewhere else dictating what I could and couldn't do. Right. And I think when you're working on things for big corporations like the BBC and I loved working for BBC shows it has so much kudos there's so much things it brings you and it's got such a um, thing about it but also it's kind of it's so dictated by red tape there are lots of people sitting upstairs that kind of make the decisions so your commissioners are the ones that make the decisions on what shows get made so the things that you see on TV are decided by people commissioners going yeah let's make that show or let that's a good idea let's make that or not make that mm. and then there's kind of executive producers or whatever and I just sort of felt like I was working and working and I wasn't getting the chance and I could see things around me that I'd be like oh that would be really interesting to film or people would love to know about that or I'd be having conversations like this and I'd tell people about things I'd witnessed when I've been in kitchens or filming or whatever that they would find really interesting and I got frustrated with the fact that I would only ever get to make those things if these people that I've never met, who'd never met the people that I was talking about, got to decide whether or not we made a program about it. And it yeah, really sure. started to bug me because I was like, but people need to know about this, actually. And they need. why should it be dictated by a small group of people? And there were sort of some decisions that got made in some programs that I was just like, oh, I don't think that's right. And I sort of felt like, well, maybe I, maybe I kind of, could start to just do things on my own but it was a bit of an accident really I didn't really ever intend it to turn how it how it has but I sort of felt like I knew enough people and I knew I'd seen enough it goes back to that storytelling thing that I always just wanted to do I just wanted to tell people stories and I felt like I was meeting people on a regular basis and finding out about stories that I just wanted to tell but working in broadcast television I didn't have the platform to be able to tell them because the commissioning process oh my god if you have an idea you have the idea sounded really cockney then you have the idea um (laughs) you you develop it 
you pitch it, you go through meetings, you like think it's decisions. It can take months and months and months and months. And I think this was around kind of COVID time. We were still kind of in lockdown. I think, well, by the time someone decides that that's a good idea, we're going to be six, nine months down the line and they would have missed it. And so I sort of felt like, well, I'm just going to film it now. So I've got it because it's happening now. And then I'll work out what I can do with it later. Because if I wait for someone else to tell me, yes, go film it, they would, it, I'll be waiting forever. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was just kind of that sense of urgency and the way the world was going of things needing to happen a lot quicker than they traditionally happen in broadcast felt like, hang on, this is thing. And it was, so it was that combined with, I did a um, series for Instagram with Tom Kerridge and Marcus Rashford, the footballer. So it was just around COVID time. And basically it was funded by Instagram. So rather than the BBC going, here's a pot of money, make a programme, we'll put it on the BBC. It was actually Instagram going, here's a pot of money, make some films and we'll put it on our platform. When, and it, right. this was kind of new. It was kind of like, what? What do you mean? With, okay. with almost no kind of boundaries and no kind of, well, well, I mean, obviously yeah, around the subject matter, yes, but... Yeah, so there was, I mean, this was when Marcus was doing a lot of his campaigning around food poverty and school meals and all of that kind of stuff. So there was an idea, lots of stuff that I wasn't involved with, and it was through a production company that I've worked with a lot. But the premise was 52 recipes that were cheap and easy to cook for people that had no money and didn't know how to cook. Marcus can't cook or couldn't cook so the idea was that Tom by doing these recipes Tom was helping Marcus learn to cook as well as all these school children and whatever so it was it was a campaign called full-time meals and we made we filmed 52 recipes that were sort of short films two three minutes that, that would then get posted on Tom's Instagram and the campaign channel and stuff throughout the year and we went and did the shoot and we had so many conversations it's funny when I think about it now because I do this every like every day it's so normal to me now but we had so many conversations with my good friends who like camera operators and the executive producers of like how do we go from filming it landscape to it's then got to be portrait because we'd have all these meetings with Instagram going well it needs to be vertical it can't be landscape and we're going well, all our cameras film landscape so how do we make it vertical and kind of that shift into a different platform that wasn't broadcast yeah that was really interesting and then the fact that it was like the recipes are shorter so in a bbc cook and chop and chat a recipe is normally about seven or eight minutes long that's kind of how long you give to a recipe but we were getting recipes into two minutes and so we're having to shift and go okay well how do we we can't take the time to explain a recipe. It's all of a sudden, it was the first time as a team we'd made anything for a digital platform and gone, okay, it's got to be shorter. It's got to be vertical, not landscape. And it's got to be way more engaging and way more quick than we would do if it was BBC. And then once we kind of got into this, we just had such a great time. Tom had the best time because we were like, we could chat to each other. It was like, he was chatting to the crew we were there there were no rules it was almost like we'd gone okay everything we've known in our tv careers rip it up throw it out the window and then just make some cool films that people are going to watch because we wanted kids to watch them and them to be used in school so like engaging a much younger audience and then it just felt so freeing of like oh we can we don't have to make content that's an hour long for 
a TV channel that takes six months to make. We were doing six recipes a day over two weeks. We then made, we had did two versions of each film. So we had 104 films in the end. In the same time that it would take us to make one, ep- like one, two episodes or whatever. And I just said something twigged in my brain that I thought, no, this is actually quite an interesting, because if we've done it for this, there must be loads of things we could do. And it was kind of at the time where Instagram and Facebook and everything were a thing, but I feel like this was a couple of years ago and they've become so much more of a thing now. But like, it sort of made me go, oh, digital, there is a place for video online that's very different to TV. And it just, I found it, my impatience and my sense of urgency I kind of then sort of how I was feeling about working in the industry and then doing that job it kind of like merged together and made me think well maybe there's a different way yeah to do it and that's kind of what started it really right and how long ago was this so this was so we did that campaign about three years ago I think right Oh, you said through through COVID, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I did that, and then I went and did another series of Great British Menu, which was the Christmas series, where they brought back loads of winners, and then we sort of filmed in the studio, but then we had to do the banquet, and I had to plan two banquets. One was the banquet, if we could do it in a banquet hall, and one was, what if we can't do it in a banquet hall? How are we going to do yeah. the banquet? Because at the time, it was the rules were changing so much, and we didn't know... And so, I, and then we ended up doing like a boxed banquet and it was great. It was, but I sort of, that was the kind of show that not through it being the show that it is, but sort of then made me, pushed me over the edge and sort of made me think maybe I can't do TV anymore because I just sort of felt like I wasn't, I wasn't doing what I really wanted to do. So I sort of just mm. threw caution to the wind and thought, okay, maybe I won't do it anymore then. <laughs> That's right. kind of what happened. So that was the last proper tv show that I did and then I sort of started doing my own thing I sort of kind of just bought a camera spent some savings and just started filming things that I thought were interesting and then it just kind of snowballed from there really and that was it yeah so uh how did you how did you come across Claire that connection yeah where did that connection come from so Claire was introduced to me by a chef that I was working with at the time she'd seen some films that I had made um for someone on social media and had asked for my contact details because this Claire was starting the Choose Hospitality campaign. So she needed someone to make the films for Choose Hospitality. So we had been put in touch by a mutual friend at the time. And she was like, right, I've got this idea for this campaign. It's about getting people to take hospitality seriously as a career. It's called Choose Hospitality. I need some films. Can you do it? And I just said, yeah. Sure. Okay, cool. Um, And then so I went and filmed all these chefs doing, we did three films, which were, one was started by Tom Kerridge and finished by Gordon Ramsay. And then there was loads of chefs in between talking about why you should choose hospitality. And that's what she wanted to launch the campaign. So I drove all around the country and filmed all these chefs. But what was great is it was chefs that I had known from my TV career. So when I had to go film Tom, I knew Tom already. Lisa Goodwin-Allen I'd met on Great British Menu. What worked for me about kind of doing this sort of this shift is I sort of knew all the chefs already because I was kind of, I'd done it in like Teleworld. So like Paul Ainsworth I knew from, I did a Christmas cooking show with him and then a couple of Great British Menus. So I was rocking up to meet all these people 
filming this campaign, they saw me kind of with a camera and were like, oh, you're doing your own thing now. And it's like, oh, yeah, cool. And then so it was kind of, it just felt natural. It felt like it was the right thing to do. And it's a campaign that I'm super proud of. And also I, I want to do more with it. I think it's just the start of something. Um, so, yeah, it was because of the Choose Hospitality campaign that me and Claire became bosom buddies, I guess. Now we don't yeah, go anywhere without each other. <laughs> well, and that's how uh, that's how we met through obviously yeah. another thing that comes out of the brain of of Claire and uh, yeah and here we are and that's um, yeah I mean HRC was just an amazing experience for me like I I, I will not forget that forever. What and made also, it? Well, just, why was uh, it so great for you? The, the the people that I met primarily and the conversations that I was able to have with people. But then I, I think I, I'd sent a post out on the, the back of doing it. And one of the major things for me was without question the team that Claire had put together to make that happen. And everybody kind of just gave a shit and everybody kind of got why we were there and everybody was just focused on making it as good as it could possibly be. And it was just a joy from start, mm. apart from the Monday morning when I was shitting my pants. But in, in any- <laughs> Once we had started, I think Claire is one of those people that what I'm learning as I get older is actually how important it is to choose the people that you put your energy into. And what I love about hospitality and what I've loved about TV in my career is the people, the variety of people that you meet and you're always meeting different people. And I, my boyfriend thinks it's really funny because there are so many people that have come into my life over my career where at the time I was so close with them because I was working on a job with them. We were making a TV show and you think, right, we're going to be friends forever. <laughs> we're going to, and then you go on and you do something else. And then you know, and you're just constantly meeting people come into your life. And I think that I have this bit of belief that not everyone is meant to be in your life forever. I think everyone is chapters of your life. And there are certain people that stay for a few chapters and certain people that just only dive in for one. And I think it's not, there's not a reason why everyone should always be in your life forever. And that's what kind of makes it dynamic is when you find there are certain people that you just want to grip onto because you believe in the same thing, you get on the same and you 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 want to achieve the same goals and you have the same beliefs. But it might only be at that time. Like right now, me and Claire do a lot of projects together and every time she calls me and says, I've got an idea, I just go, yes, just tell me yeah. where I need to be and yeah. when because I trust us to do it. We might not be friends forever. I hope that we are. But right now in my career and in what we're trying to do in the industry and how we're working together, we're very prominent in people's lives. But not everybody is like that all the time. I like that I have people that come in and, and go out. So I don't really know where I'm going with this, but I think it's what's great about hospitality and TV and media is just the variety of people and I think you never know who you're going to meet what they're going to say and where they're going to take you I think everyone has an impact on you and it can change things for the better or it can shift you in one way or another and I think you've just got to roll with it and just go okay who am I meeting today and there's been so many times where I've started the week thinking it's going to go a certain way I've done something and then I've ended up doing something totally different and you just kind of you just roll with it. I think it's yeah. don't try and change it. Anyway, I went off on a tangent again, but yes, there's, you, you there's certain you don't do that, people. Do you? 
it's so bad i don't know why i'm doing it i'm really sorry no but you talk with passion and that's um you know an idea you're one of these people i think whereby something pops into your head and you go wow yeah bang that yeah which is terrible this is why normally I'm the one asking the questions and not answering them because I just ramble too much. Whereas I'm Have you come out with cold sweat as we've been talking about <laughs> yeah, this? Like, one of wanna... my things my friends will always say is I'm constantly playing with my hair. Like that's my like nervous reaction. It's like, oh, okay, I'm just going to keep playing with my hair until I shut up, basically. Yeah, I appeared on somebody else's podcast fairly recently and um, all the way through when I was talking, I, I, I do this a lot. Like, I, you know, I, I touch my face a lot as if to yeah I don't know what that is some psychologist out there can probably tell me but um mm. but yeah we all have yeah, our little things there is and it's the touch of it there's a chef I'm working with at the moment that I feel and every time I turn the camera on he touches his face and really? I'm like you've got to stop I don't know what it is it's like a reaction it's like as soon as like I press record and go he starts his sentence by touching his face and it wasn't something that I noticed until I was sitting in the edit and I was like okay this is I think so it must be there must be some sort of psychology in like you're getting ready I don't know but yeah no indeed so um from your your career so far do you have any funny stories that you can share with us I don't know do you know what when you I I'm sure there are but I just forget them which is terrible isn't it like I just I, I know I've laughed a lot and there have been a lot of times where things have happened but now that you asked me, I genuinely can't think of what's funny. Do you know what I mean? It's one of those really things where yeah, you yeah. go, oh, tell me, tell me a joke. And I'm like, ah, I don't know a joke. Yeah. Um, but that probably, yeah, I, I don't like this question because what's funny, I find things funny that other people don't find funny. Like I'm a real dad's oh. joke laugher. I'm the only right. one that laughs at my father-in-law's jokes. I'm the only one that gets it. Everybody else just rolls their eyes and I just... I'm hysterical because I just think the simplest things are, are funny. Yeah, um, well, that's I'm... all right. We we can park that because it, it's also one of those things. There's, this is kind of the, the industry is just a laugh a minute generally. Yeah. And there's so many things that just pass you by in the moment but that you don't really contemplate no. until you, you look back on it 20 years later and go, do you know what? That was That was bizarre, funny, weird, quirky, all of these yeah. things. I'm sure there are. Like, I mean, that's the thing is I think – the reason that, this is me analysing now, the reason I can't think of one is because there have been so many. I think yeah. for all, I feel like in my career there's been there's been many ups and downs. There's been a lot of tears. There's been a lot of stress. But there's also been a lot of, a lot of laughs. I mean, I can just think of one. Okay, I'll tell you this story. There's one day where um, I was filming with the Harry Bikers in Fleet Services, which is I very glamorous. and it was the hottest day of the year like it was so hot and they were doing a cook for peri peri chicken in the car park of fleet services as you do so they'd set up the motorbike table across the thing and they were making peri peri chicken and obviously it's their mountain it was like leathers whatever they were just super hot and there was a bit of a drama I had a bit of because I'd sort of got them a hotel anyway we ended up having a bit of a massive argument and then five minutes later we had to do, there was also this part of like these skits, which was part of the series, which was all about chicken and eggs. And they, the Harry Bikers are great. I love them. I've had a lot of time with them and they just like, they've got a sense of humour. And the director said to me, right, we need you to dress up as a drive through burger assistant and we're going to take over the Starbucks coffee drive through make it look like it's like a burger, in and out burger. And the guys are going to pull up 
and order a burger. So I was like, okay, fine. I was, I was fuming Whatever. because I was angry. It was the hottest day. I was like, fine. I just want to get to the end of this shoot. I just want it to be over. I literally had like, and he was like, oh, and I want you to look, you know, different. I'm like, right, okay. So it was like bright yellow baseball cap, back brushed my hair, ponytail, massive gold earrings, loads of eyeliner, loads of lip gloss, orange tabard. And I was like, right, I'm in. So I'm standing in the um, window of the drive-through, camera film, like, ready. I'm like, the guys are going to drive through. And they drive through, and one's dressed up as a chicken, and one's dressed up as an egg. Like, <laughs> full-on costume. And then they order. But, and I'm like, how am I meant to keep a straight face? I look at me. Look where I And it was one of those moments where I was like, when I tell this story years later, it's like, why were you doing that? You were in fleet services. It's the hottest day of the year. You're dressed up as a burger assistant. And the hairy bikers are driving through the drive-thru dressed as a hairy chicken and a giant egg. Can we just go with that? As a, That's your normal day at work. Like, okay, cool. Yeah, fine. Yeah. And it's just weird, isn't it? And I just remember thinking, this is just, this is why I do what I do, because why else would you do that? I mean, obviously, I've had much more, there's been much more glamorous things than that. But, yeah, sometimes you just, you're only in fleet services and the weirdest things can yeah. happen so the, the things you do for your craft eh? the um oh. do you know the um the hairy bikers are responsible for one of my all-time favorite lines of any tv show that i've ever watched in my entire life now that's a setup right they were i think they were on a it was their asian tour that they were they were doing and they were in yeah. hong kong and they were up on a mountain uh i think attempting to make their own sushi and there wasn't an ingredient to hand or something like that. And um, I can't even remember which one of them said it, but they said, oh, this wouldn't happen to Rick Stein, would it? And I, <laughs> I just remember thinking to myself, that's just an absolute comedy genius yeah. in, the, in yeah, the moment. They are, the hairy bikers are just brilliant. And also what, they are absolutely responsible for their own success. Do you know how they started? No. Do you know much about their background? So um, I can't remember which way around it is. Dave was a makeup artist and Sai was a location scout. So they worked in the industry as members of the production team. And they had this idea to drive around on their motorbikes around Britain and go and visit all these food producers. And so they wrote it up and they made it happen themselves and then that was the first thing that they did um, and they did all the research themselves they found all of the producers they almost cut, like wrote the script did everything and then that was obviously That's their good. first series and then I think they've made something crazy like 40 tv series now I mean it's mad how many they've done yeah. but they started the other side of the camera they were members of the production team That's which right. I just but, love yeah. because yeah they got right. it yeah, well, that's the thing, right? It, it, they're mm. they're very informed, therefore, when it comes to what do we actually need to cover off here yeah. as a as a TV show. What are we going to have to make sure that we cover? And they've already got the experience on how to go and do mm. all of that. So there, you're kind of cementing the argument you made earlier on around actually just learn your craft, you know, as as well as you can learn it before you move on to the next thing yeah. because it can kind of just pay dividends at that moment absolutely and I think that is is kind of one of the fundamental reasons why they've been so successful because they really understood program making 
and what was interesting and what was needed they weren't just oh we want to be a celebrity and put a camera in front of our face we're going to cook and be funny they genuinely did all the background work before they got to that point and I think that's why I had we had some heated moments everybody does but they were a total joy to work with and they just genuinely loved doing what they did and it like when we were in America even like another super hot day and everyone's like dying they're still managing to crack a joke and and then it's a total a total joy so I I some of my favorite times in my career have been with the hairy bikers I've loved working with them I think they're great yeah and that's what you need when everybody's sweating the bits off isn't it you need a bit of humor in that room yeah even in fleet services off the m4 wherever it is yeah (laughs) yeah absolutely great stuff um what three reasons would you give to somebody who was contemplating a career in in hospitality why should they come and work in hospitality the three i would say are my absolute fundamental thing in life is just the people like when else you do not know who you're going to meet and when you're going to meet them. And you're not just going to meet people in the industry. You Hospitality is a gateway to the world. Like you meet so many people in so many different industries and so many different walks of life because hospitality applies to everybody. And it is if you want to see the world and meet different people from different backgrounds and different cultures and different experiences and life perspectives and opinions work in hospitality because that is where everybody eats everybody drinks everybody needs to like sustain themselves so it is the one thing that is fundamental through everybody it doesn't matter who you are hospitality is relevant to you so I think if you're people and interested in people and interested in stories there is no other job or industry that you should work in because when else would you then the echo chamber doesn't exist in hospitality I don't think you yes there's people within hospitality who understand hospitality but it's always so much broader than that there are always so many different people involved I mean like like me I'm not a chef I don't run a restaurant but I'm still kind of connected to the industry so the people is definitely number one the places is number two because I've been all over the world and ended up in all walks of places because of working in hospitality and food and filming food from fleet services to the other side of the world so I think it's in terms of traveling and seeing the world but also in this country I mean so many times now I pull up to a premiere inn and I'm like I have definitely stayed in this premiere inn before I absolutely cannot remember why or I will walk into a cafe or a restaurant and I'll go I've been here before because I've filmed here like I sort of feel like now I've I've sort of covered the country um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but there is there is every nook and cranny it will take you and it's all connected. So I just think it's the best way to see things and places um, yeah. because you always I won't go on holiday without planning where I'm going to eat. And that is kind of that dictates where I'm going to go on holiday because I, well, I want to see nice restaurants. And then that means I meet people. So the places are the other thing. And then also variety and not knowing. I just think there are some people that are happy and want to know what they're doing all the time. I think that's absolutely fine. I want to have like things marked out for them and nine to five and and know what they're doing and can plan, have a three year, five year, 10 year plan. I'm not one of those people. And I think if you're not, hospitality just provides so many opportunities for to absolutely mix it up 
you could never get bored. Like you will never know if I look back sort of two, three years and everything that's happened to me in that time, if you'd, if we'd have had this conversation five years ago, there's absolutely no way I would have predicted I've done all the things that I've done. And it's because it's just so unpredictable. And I think once you accept the unpredictability and you don't try and fight it, and you just roll with it. And I think it applies to hospitality and media and television as well. Then you can just enjoy the ride. Like literally, you don't know. Like I had a phone call about something yesterday that I'm now filming next Wednesday, which is top secret. I can't tell you. But literally, I wouldn't have, like, it's come out of the blue. I'm now filming it on Wednesday. It's really cool. And I'm like, it's literally, I just got a phone call yesterday. I didn't know about it. And it's only next week. And I just love that because when I woke up yesterday morning, I wasn't doing anything interesting on Wednesday next week. And now I'm doing something (laughs) really cool. And I just love the, I almost, I get such a buzz from things happening that I didn't know were going to happen. And that's why hospitality is great because it's constantly like that, which is one of the reasons why probably people find it frustrating. But I actually think it's a bloody cool thing that you you just never know what's going to happen. We didn't yeah. know we would be having this conversation, Phil, did we? No, so, I, what, three weeks ago? I didn't yeah. even know you. So, yeah, and didn't yeah. even contemplate the fact that actually doing uh, film production and the like would, would have, you know, is a, a career arm of this industry. Yeah, I think it absolutely is. And if anything, it's becoming more more important. I'll try not to go on a rant about it because I don't know if it's something you're going to ask me. But I do can, think it'll it... be like a bookend then because you <laughs> ranted at the beginning and we can finish it with a rant. Yeah, I mean, one of the things when you were like, is there certain things you want to talk about? And it is kind of like, I think the way that Instagram and social media platforms have changed the industry is really interesting. I think I have a love-hate relationship with social media because I've built a business on social media content. That is what I do. I make things for Instagram mostly so of course it's given me these opportunities but then at the same time it it has diluted the industry a little bit because I think it's people feel like because everybody else is doing it they need to do it too so it's almost like you're scrolling and you're seeing photos and videos that are very similar and it's all food and it's all restaurants because that's kind of what everyone's doing but actually there's no kind of separation I think people are too scared to be authentic in themselves because it's kind of on Instagram you know the whole filter thing of like what's actually happening behind the scenes I think it's there's a question of how much do you really need to do and how you should be doing it and what's right and I think everyone has a camera and everyone can take things and take photos and videos and stuff so and that's how customers find restaurants if people want to go out for dinner they go to places that they've seen on Instagram and I am it's a constant conversation I'm having with myself because I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing really I think it gives you it opens things up to be discovered in a way that you wouldn't perhaps be discovered I mean you're not in like necessarily in a list or on a guide but someone's seen something cool on Instagram so they want to come to your restaurant I think that's really cool but then at the same time it creates this pressure that you've got to have a presence on these social media platforms but then because you've got to have a presence you feel like you're making content for content's sake because you've got to have photos or you've got to have videos and it's like you shouldn't just make videos because you know you need videos you have to have a reason and a lot of what we do is it's like films with purpose because Yes, tell a story, but don't just make something or post something just because you've got to do three posts that week because that's what your marketers have told you you've got to do and you've got to have like this presence because then it just becomes a catalogue 
of stuff that just doesn't feel like it's the same. And I think we're in a bit of a dangerous territory where it's gone great. It's opened up this whole world to job roles, like look at people like Poppy Cooks and people that have created jobs in the industry solely through social media platforms, which is great. And they've reached potatoes oh my god I did her um I did one of her recipes for potatoes at Christmas it was amazing um so which is great and so we kind of had that peak but then I do think we're in danger of sterilizing the industry a little bit because everyone's kind of trying to do the same thing so I hear you it worries me slightly and I guess there's also the the risk and you know, maybe we're overthinking this. I I don't know, but the um, there's maybe the risk to the business that you have, as you say, you've catalogued all of your experiences for people to go and visually see on your profile page. What are you leaving them with left to explore, mm-hmm. other than the, the mm-hmm. flavor and, and all of that sort of stuff? You've got a, a I suppose you need a, a little bit of mystique, I think, as mm-hmm. well, as mm-hmm. to why somebody should come and experience what you've you've got to offer. And I get it. Like, I get it. It's a really great shop window to to say, look, if you come here, you're going to get this wonderful theatre of a dish that we've, you know, curated over six years of development or whatever. And that's great. But yeah, do you run the risk of the experience being diluted because they've already semi-experienced it? I don't know. I don't and know. As also I think, maybe just overthinking. The seat, they've seen the dishes as well because they've seen it and so when it's put in front of them it's not a oh my god I didn't know what this was going to look like because I saw it on Instagram mm. two days ago um, before I was coming and but also it's that thing of I had the experience recently where I went to a restaurant that everyone was talking about I'd seen it loads on social media everyone's saying how great it was and I went and I feel like I actually was a bit disappointed because I'd already subconsciously created a preconception about what my experience was going to be because of the things I'd seen about it and then actually it kind of let me down whereas if I hadn't have seen any of that or hadn't have heard any of that just by going I would have had a different experience maybe in the same way that sort of when you earn a Michelin star you then kind of create this level of expectation of everyone coming expects a certain thing I think there is the same thing of how you present yourself on social media then creates an expectation from the customers and actually I think it's much I'm sort of trying to get some of my clients and friends to actually just be honest and authentic and actually just don't worry so much about being a a brand this is everything we offer actually just be a person and just be yourself and talk about you and what you're doing I've got um a friend slash client who I'm working with at the moment and on their restaurant Instagram before I sort of started working with him I was like where are you you're not on any of this there was no pictures there was no videos of him there was nothing and it was his restaurant and I was kind of like well what where are you I'm just looking at like adverts or photos of the food which is kind of fine but actually if people you want people to come because they want to know who's behind it and what's doing and actually sort of we started doing this thing where I'm like do you know what, just film what you're doing. He's had all this amazing stuff going on behind the restaurant. He'd be out digging or growing things or planting things or whatever. And I'm like, well, just film it on your phone, selfie mode, and just talk through what you're doing. And let's just post it on Instagram and just see what happens. And all of a sudden, everyone went nuts because it was like, oh, my God, I didn't realise this was happening. Or I didn't, I've never heard you speak or heard you talk about your restaurant or what you're doing. And now I'm really interested in what you're doing. And it's not because he's putting 
photos of the food and this is our menu and this is what we do. He's just actually talking about day to day what's going on in the restaurant and what he's doing and what's happening behind the scenes. And it kind of switched everyone kind of all of a sudden so much more engaged with it. And he's like, oh, it's cringy. And I'm like, it's not because people want to know. Like people want to know. It's It's not enough anymore, I think, to just go this is this is who we are as a brand and you won't see what's behind the scenes everyone you you want to see what's behind yeah. the scenes can I just tell you this story quickly because it's one of my favorites and then I'll Go shut on. up yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. made me remember <laughs> I went I was I was thought this kind of what people because there used to be a point where no one would see the kitchen do you remember like kitchens weren't exposed it was behind a door. You never customers and guests never went in the kitchen or never saw the kitchen. You would never have photos or videos in the kitchen. It was kind of like secret and hidden. Yeah. Whereas now, kind of open kitchens are a thing. I can't remember what I was doing or why I was there. I was in London and I went to an Italian restaurant by myself once a couple of years ago, and it was this old guy who ran it. And he came over and chatted to me and he was telling me the story about his restaurant and how he started. And he said in the seventies he started his restaurant. So it's like an Italian restaurant and. It was like behind like a stud wall was the kitchen and there was like one of those swing doors and he'd say the restaurant would be full and and there's all this noise coming from the kitchen because that's just what the environment of kitchens used to sound like. Um, And he'd go through and like talk to the kitchen team and say, oh, service, whatever, and then come back out. And everyone just thought it was a really busy, wonderful restaurant. And actually what they didn't know is there was no one, there wasn't a kitchen behind the wall. There was just a couple of microwaves. He was playing some kitchen noises on a stereo and just putting things in and out of the microwave. <laughs> and everyone was going to the restaurant. And he was like, I don't know how I got away with it for so long, but that's how we started the restaurant. I was like, that is the most, isn't that the most amazing thing? Just brilliant. people, yeah. just, because in the day, nobody cared. I guess my point of telling that story is, gone are the days where people didn't care they turned it blind no one ever questioned it no one ever asked him how he cooked the food where the food come from who the team were no one used to care about that stuff so restaurants mm. would just cook great food people would come and eat it and that was it whereas nowadays you've got to show everything because yeah. people want to know everything and i think the more you bear the better because it just only goes to show that you're authentic and honest and your true self and that is what people buy into people don't want to feel like they're being sold something or it's an advert or whatever I think you've just got to go full skinny dipping or don't go swimming at all Does that make sense? great illusion <laughs> <laughs> well that's definitely making the intro that, that, that line for sure um, oh I'm sorry uh, I don't know where that came from that was quite good though wasn't it it's good yeah yeah it's a good way to summarize for sure yeah we'll take that um <laughs> wicked look I, I am um, eminently conscious of time um, yeah I'm sorry I don't even no, know no. if we talked about the things that you wanted to talk about yeah did totally we? no I'm, I'm very happy with uh with everything there's, there's a career journey in there there's some stories there's you know we've highlighted another arm to the industry that, that people can come and, and get involved with the, yeah. the last question to you is is that if people want to learn about your business you in a bit more detail or anything that we've talked about today what's the best method for them to contact you to do so this goes so against what i've just said but instagram social media. is the best yeah. social media uh, so we're at 750 films on instagram or our website 750.co.uk so you can kind of track us and see us through that really um yeah against Wicked. everything that i've just 
said about social yeah. this is the battle I have every day like I hate social media but it's also my job so I need to yeah. love it but I think um, a lot of people have a love-hate relationship with social media like I, I I go through phases with it as well like my my thing at the moment with social media is, is that I'm actually only using videos uh, or reels to go and seek out comedy I will just scroll past anything that doesn't make yeah. me laugh um, yeah. And actually, from that purpose, it serves a massive, like, one of the, the biggest things for me is to keep myself in a laughing state. Like, that's, that's where yeah. I am happiest. So, and I uh, think, yeah, it's true. And it's one of the things that I've learned recently is actually you can change your feed of like what you're scrolling through. Like, you don't yeah. have to scroll for everything. Like, if certain things are making you feel sad or unhappy or uneasy or anxious, don't follow that. I did a thing lately where. I'm, I'm big into my cycling. That's kind of what I do outside of work worlds. And so I just filled my feed and started following all these professional female cyclists and all the competitions and stuff. So now all I'm looking at is like girls on bikes doing really cool stuff. And I'm like, that's what I want from my personal Instagram because that's what makes me feel happy. I think yeah. you can switch off the things that you don't want to look at. You don't have to look at everything and you are in control of your library. Like it's, you can change the books on the shelf that you're reading at any time. So you can do that with people who follow on Instagram. I think it's good for everybody to have a clear out every a now cleanse. and then. Yes. A cleanse of just going, actually, this person, is it making me feel like jealous or anxious? Or am I not really sure what I'm getting from this person so, mm. or this company? So I'm just going to unfollow. There's yeah. no shame in unfollowing. You can do it. Absolutely. Be strong. Don't, don't unfollow this show. Though, no, exactly. No, absolutely <laughs> don't do that. Yeah, yeah. Don't do that at all. That's not what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> oh my Wicked. God. Look, thank you so much for for sharing your story. It's been an absolute joy to to get to know you over the last few weeks. I uh, I'm hoping that we'll be doing more together at some point down the line. It's thank you so sounds, much. Sounds like we might be. Well, um, we've got a lunch booked in, haven't we, Phil? We do. We do. We do. Yeah. We do. So, so um, let, let's see where that goes. Come. Yeah, um, next time maybe I just won't talk so much because I just uh, feel like this is you be not you. Good. Don't don't ever change. <laughs> yeah. yeah, don't think, just do. That's the Absolutely. thing. Absolutely, it was lovely to speak to you. Thanks for having me on. I've loved it. You're very welcome. Thanks, Rosa. Take it easy. Bye. And there we have it. Another epic journey, and hopefully this highlights to you all another incredibly interesting career path you can take. A huge thank you to Rosa for bringing the thunder. We'll be back as usual at 8pm next Wednesday for another story from hospitality. So until then, thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week.